September the 13th, 2014, on Saturday, beginning at approximately 8.46 in the evening. Hello, my name's David Thompson. Those of you that are new, I just briefly want to mention that I am here to share with you, seeking to share as the oracles of God. As the Apostle Peter spoke to the early church, he commanded them by the Holy Spirit, saying, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In 1 Peter chapter 4. So I will seek to speak as the oracles of God to allow, that is, the Spirit of God to speak out of me, not just merely my own intellect and understandings, but to allow the Holy Spirit to speak what he would say to you as an individual who in God's foreknowledge has come to hear this message and also to the corporate body of Christ. And part of what I do to facilitate this is I cast lots before God to receive a particular chapter. So today I received Luke chapter 13. I will first read this chapter and then I will trust the Holy Spirit to speak what he would say from this chapter. Luke chapter 13. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell, and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down, why cometh it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity eighteen years and it was bowed together and could not in any wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day, and said unto the people, there are six days in which men ought to work, in them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each of one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? 
And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had bound, lo, these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Then said he, Unto what is the kingdom of God like? And whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying, journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up, and hath shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without, and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east, and from the west, and from the north, and from the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. Same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye, and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would have I gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings? And ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So ends the reading of this chapter. In the beginning of this chapter in verses 1 to 5, we have Christ describing 
to these people the tragedy of certain people whose life was cut short. Actually, it wasn't Christ describing it. It was Christ responding to their description. And he basically says this, that these people that experience these tragedies, the Galileans who were killed in a very horrific way by Herod, and the accident of a tower collapsing on people so that their lives were cut short before their time. He said that they were not really that much worse than anyone else. People often conclude that when tragedies happen to people, at least particularly in that time, that there was a reaping in their lives of something that they had sown of evil. But Christ says that generally this whole city or this whole place is not any different than these people except for one issue. The issue that causes people's lives to be cut short before their time is the failure to repent. And so he says, but I tell you, in verse 5, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. You will all be cut short before your time. You will all experience a similar short coming in your life where your life that could have been more meaningful and fulfilling is cut short with tragedy. The issue is repentance. And that most people do not have in their life a practice of genuine repentance. Many have not even repented. Now this word repentance comes from a Greek word meaning metanona. If I'm pronouncing it reasonably accurate. Metanona. Metanono, meta no neo, and so on, different. It basically means to perceive afterwards. It is. It has the understanding that the mind, the seat of, is, a, is the seat of moral perfection, to perceive beforehand. It signifies to change one's mind or purpose. It has the understanding of regret that is significant at the core of one's being to bring change so that their lives change as a result. Often the way it is defined by people is that it is an about face, but it has an understanding to perceive afterwards it, with a sense of regret, looking back on one's life and recognizing the way I've been living, where is it leading to? And where, what has already happened because of the way I've been living in rebellion against God? 
in a way that I know in my heart of hearts is displeasing to God. I don't want to continue in this direction. I see where it's leading. I regret it. So I'm going to make a change. I do not like what I see. God is calling us as his people to allow our lives to be pliable as clay before God. We know the old hymn that says, Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy way. And another hymn that says, Mold me, make me, break me. There's an understanding and repentance of becoming pliable before God like clay, of allowing the hardness that is in one's heart, which results in a hardening of our ways, in independence from God, to be shattered. There's a verse in Hosea that says that we are to break up our fallen ground. In fact, I know a very beautiful song and I could sing a little bit of it right here, which is a quotation of that verse. And it, it says basically this. Um, it, uh, Seek ye. Actually, I'm thinking of a different hymn now. It says, prepare. Now I got it. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough way shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So to yourselves in righteousness reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. And then that song repeats with prepare ye the way of the Lord. God is calling us as individuals and as people corporately to be beginning to prepare our lives for his coming. That involves the breaking up of the fallow ground, of sowing into that ground that has been made soft in order to bring forth genuine fruit, the genuine fruit of repentance. And that other song, that I just about sang was, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him 
while he sneer. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God is desiring our lives to enter in to full meaning of destiny and fulfillment and not to end in tragedy and meaninglessness and eternal separation from him because we have rejected his loving kindness, his mercy revealed in his atoning sacrifice on the cross. There are many examples in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament of deep repentance among God's people. There are many examples throughout the history of Israel of great revivals. All of them began with real, genuine contrition, contriteness of heart, abhorrence of the way of iniquity, of stubborn rebellion against God. Coming to a place of breaking up the fall of ground, of our lives coming out of the ruts and the shells of confinement that have imprisoned so many in a life that is empty and meaningless and religiously a mere shell of ritualism without the reality and the essence of fellowship with God and of his presence. Paul the Apostle said to the early church, Yea, what sorrow it wrought on you when I told you you needed to repent. He basically said this to them. And they responded with great sorrow. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what abhorrence and so on. There came a place where they saw the ugliness of their condition. Like a filthy garment and when you really see it for what it is, you want to cast it off and never again have anything to do with it. Like a web subtly coming around one's life and drawing them into the place where their lives are devoured by the spider, by the evil one. May God awaken us as his people to have a life of a repentance daily in our lives because that brings us into a place of pliability like clay before God where he can make us unto a vessel of honor where he can mold us and bring ultimate meaning and purpose and fulfillment that will ever enlarge in greater capacities of comprehending the love of God and expressing it in creativity throughout eternity in that time in heaven where we will ever be with the Lord.
the prodigal son repented. When he came to his senses and recognized the consequences and the ugliness of those consequences because of choosing his own way, taking the things that his father had given him or taking our own life that God has given us and using it in a way that showed that we weren't thankful for the life that God had given us, that we weren't respectful unto the Creator. There are many that come to the place like the prodigal son, where when they see what is the consequences of their own deception, instead of hiding and ignoring it, by choosing beliefs that will bring them into greater delusions to justify the delusion that they've already entered, they come to recognize the truth so that they are open to what is ultimately trustworthy. And lo, the deception not only of themselves, but of this world and all the emptiness that is in it. What brings one to a place where they are open to receiving who God can be to them and who God is in reality when they're open to facing what is ultimately real. God is the I am that I am, and that's a definition of ultimate reality. And for those that are new, I'll just give a brief definition of this. The dictionaries define truth as that which is real. And so you look up the word reality or real, and you discover that it basically means that which is unchangeable, everlasting, indestructible. Reality is that which has no corruption in it. Corruption is that which is destructible and is going in a path that eventually leads to ultimate chaos. It's basically a scientific law that is observed in science in the whole known universe. And that is the first, and well, it's the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says this, that anything left on its own always falls, goes in a direction of greater and greater disorder, order to complete destruction and chaos and meaninglessness. Meaninglessness. And when we are left on our own in independence of the source of reality, which is life that is ever expanding without corruption, then that is what we experience, emptiness. God created us to find reality because it is only in reality that the inner core of our being is satisfied, and that reality is only found in God. God is reality. He is called the I am that I am. In Hebrew, it's Ahiya, Asher Ahiya. He is the solid rock that is immovable, that is ultimately real and ultimately filled with life, and that is because his love is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his love. His love is always choosing the highest lasting good over anything that would be less or that would be corrupt. 
It is because of the purity and the integrity of, love, of his love, which is the holiness of God or the defensive aspect of his love. And it is in this that we find what is ultimately trustworthy. It is when we acknowledge that the consequences of our own life are because of our own decisions and independence from the holiness of God and that we deserve God's judgment. But recognize that because God is holy and he requires judgment, it is that that is the foundation for his mercy, that he could have such an amazing capacity of pure love to express it to the degree that he could become a perfect atoning sacrifice that would suffer more than us, a mere creature, and humble himself more than us, a mere creature, in order that we could be forgiven. Now, I'm not here to get into all of the details of the character of God, but it is in the recognition first of the holiness of God and our deserved judgment, and out of that of the greatness of God's mercy, which can only spring out of the foundation of the perfection of his love and holiness. By him taking judgment upon himself, which he did in Jesus Christ, that we can have a genuine repentance, a genuine reaching out to what we see will ultimately assure us destiny and purpose and also assure us that we're forgiven. I will go on in this passage of Scripture to just mention the next section, which is in verses 6 to 9, where Christ describes the evidence of true repentance as fruitfulness in one's life instead of a life that is wasted and meaningless. He describes the dresser of the vineyard seeking fruit on certain plants that weren't fruitful and the father already deciding or the master already making plans to take the plant out to remove it so that it did not fulfill the purpose for which it was created. But he pleads and says, give me more time, I'll prune it, I'll dig it about. Perchance then it will bear fruit. And of course, this is very obviously a further description of the repentance that we've been talking about that Christ describes here. This is a repentance that involves sometimes the need for God to allow trials in people's lives to shake them up so that they recognize the deception that is in their lives that has allowed them to make their priorities wrong, to make wrong priorities in their lives. And Jonah, it says, those that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. So God allows trials to get one's attention that they might come to the place where that soil becomes pliable and soft and can receive the rain and the nutrients so that it begins to bear fruit. But if one through those trials and testings continues to resist God's will and to become all the more bitter, 
then their life ends in is cut short before its time and tragedy, not only in this life, but for eternity. There's an exhortation that Christ gives to the Laodicean church. He says, I counsel thee to choose to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clean, and anoint thine eyes white eye saw that thou mayest see. This is again a description of repentance. In repentance, there is a choice to allow God to be the potter in our life. That's where we say to God, God, I choose to let you be the Lord of my life and to allow trials in my life, to allow what it takes for me to be brought into the right place of fellowship with you where you can have your way in my life. I choose to let you be the potter. I choose to allow you to chastise me rather than to choose my own way and ignore you and have an easy life. I'd rather have a hard life and know that I have a real relationship with you and inside, in the very depths of my being, know the satisfaction of your presence for which I was created to abide in and to worship you with, for which I find my meaning and my fulfillment that genuinely, everlastingly satisfies, unlike the emptiness that I've felt from those things that I've tried to grasp onto in my own deceptive ways. So God is desiring our lives to come forth with the fulfillment of honor and glory and praise to him in all we do so that lives around us are changed and brought to God so that our life is ever enlarging in greater expressions of creativity in love to God, in the things that we choose to do with our time, redeeming the time because the days are evil, as the Word of God says. First John, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. What holds our lives back from repentance is the love for the things of this temporal life that are in those three categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In our modern society, that works out into things such as spending exorbitant amounts of time watching sports, fulfilling our own pleasures instead of focusing on the work of God, the gods of amusements, the gods of pleasure, being filled with abundance of food, not having so that we become insular 
and comfortable in our lives and are not aware of the suffering around us. It says in the word of God in Ezekiel that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was pride, abundance of bread, and idleness. God is calling us as the body of Christ to be those that come forth in purity. And it is in purity that we find wholeness. It is in purity that we find genuine beauty. It is out of the holiness of God that springs forth wholeness. The manifestation of wholeness in God, which out of that brings the manifestation of the beauty of God. That's why King David said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He also said, Thy loving kindness is better than life. When we really recognize who God is in his loving kindness, which involves this integrity of love that is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to love, to the will of God, which is the expression of God's love. When we recognize that, then we can say with King David, whom do I desire in heaven but thee, and whom do I desire on earth but you? This is all something that comes out of recognizing with the eye of our heart God and being reciprocative to the full recognition of who God is. In fact, the fear of God is a choice to recognize and receive who God is in his holiness without taking offense of the consequences of the holiness of God like Cain did. Most likely when he saw the consequences of the curse, he began to take offense in his heart and withdrew and began to look at God as an enigma, as a mystery, and, and looked at him and his holiness as somehow controlling and lost sight of the goodness of God that is contained in the holiness of God that requires such judgment. Only the holiness of God can contain unlimited life and power without being corrupted by it and, in, and in channel it as a result in a way that is totally constructive unto life without anything that is destructive and can as such ever enlarge without end throughout eternity going on forever and ever in greater fulfillments in the expression of this love. God is calling us as his people to learn what it is to wait on God, to be still and know that he is God in our heart, to learn what it is to have a deep turning that can only come through being in awe of who God is in his holiness and in his mercy that comes out of his holiness in this perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross. A message that was preached from the time of Adam and Eve was very clear that there is one God and that he has provided a way of forgiveness, that he is holy and requires judgment, but that his love is so pure in this holiness that he has the moral capacity 
to become a perfect atoning sacrifice to take judgment upon himself for us or he would not have the power to be the source of forgiveness. And I don't have time to go into the depth of what all that is that happened back then, but to say this, that the gospel has been preached from the very beginning. The good news that we can be reconciled to God because he is our source of forgiveness. Many of them recognized that back then. They recognized that the animal could only cleanse the physical realm and allow God's presence near them so they could know him. They recognized that they said things like, what shall I give for the sin of my soul? Shall I give my children? No. Shall I give my own body? No. The only one that can possibly be a perfect atoning sacrifice is clearly implied from the very beginning, and that is God himself, who did that in Jesus Christ, who is the full expression of God into time and space to govern in this realm. The Father governs beyond the time and space realm. And the Holy Spirit in that dimension that, that fills all things. Now, I will go on with this passage. And I don't have, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this passage. But the next section of this passage, which is from verse 10 to 17, is describing a woman that was bound by Satan for 18 years. She was bent over so that she could not stand straight. And here Christ is in the synagogue and he heals her, and the leader of the synagogue has the audacity to say to someone that has just experienced such a dramatic miracle before all these people and has been bound and is set free, instantly healed in front of all these people, he has the audacity to say, don't you dare do something like that on the Sabbath day. That's work. And of course, Christ exposes his hypocrisy, as we read. This woman is a symbol of many people whose lives are, have been bent over and bound by Satan for many years. Because they have been dejected by religious hierarchies that have required them to be members of their group only so they can feel looked up to and receive self-glory and receive the comforts of wealth and they have failed to bring these people in to an intimate relationship, not only with God, but with them and with each other in the meeting. It's become a mere religious shell of religious practice, devoid of reciprocative fellowship that is genuine and deep with God and with one another. And so people become empty inside. 
and discouraged, and they become bent over, and they feel hopeless and helpless. And the enemy lies to them, and the next thing you know, they experience even the manifestation in the physical, because they don't know where else to put their identity, and yet where they're seeking to put their identity is in something that's empty and doesn't have reality in it, and yet poses as being real and condemns them if they leave, and then they feel condemned by the devil that if they leave, they'll be judged by God. And so they're dejected because they're be re receiving a distorted image of who God is, similar to the distorted image that Cain had of God, where he only perceived God as holy and as controlling and demanding and did not see the goodness of God nor the need for God's mercy and that his works could never be what would satisfy before God. The understanding of the word Sabbath, the meaning of the word, is cessation, ceasing from our own works. It is the opposite of the word idle, which basically has the understanding of self-initiation as opposed to cessation. Self-initiation to form our own or carve our own image of who we want God to be to us so that we can justify our own independence from God in conformity to the one that is in rebellion against God, the devil. The understanding of idolatry is this. It says in the word of God, covetousness is idolatry. What is covetousness? Covetousness is a self-grasping state of being that is destructive because it is grasping onto temporal things of this world to try to fill a void inside one's being that can only be satisfied with God himself. It's like a black hole in outer space that pulls everything into it in a destructive way. In other words, one is making choices that are contrary to the highest lasting good, that are contrary to love, in an attempt to fill a void inside that was only created to find destiny and meaning and total satisfaction in God. And the Word of God says that covetousness, this grasping state of being that is expressed even in religious activity that becomes mere routine without relationship, coveting position and hierarchy to be accepted of others and so on, and making that the focus, making the Ten Commandments the focus so that it becomes an idol instead of having a relationship with God. All of these deceptions. And idolatry is defined as basically what I said, that which involves our self-initiation to form and carve out our own destiny and also in that to justify it by forming and carving our own concept of God that is contrary to who God really is in his holiness and his mercy. Those that want to ignore the holiness of God begin to emphasize that God is a God of grace and they ignore the fact that God's love requires absolute purity and integrity, that he cannot tolerate what is contrary to his love. He cannot tolerate sin and that he's a God of judgment.
so their God will embrace everyone, including the devil himself, so to speak, and believes in false teachings that often are rampant throughout church history, such as universalism, which believes that eventually all things will be reconciled to God, including the devil himself. Well, God will not condone, and he will always judge sin. And if he didn't, he would no longer be God or be able to contain love and kindness that is what contains life without corruption because it has total integrity and yet can assure mercy out of that integrity that springs out of that integrity. I won't get into the depth of these things. But here we have a situation where someone is bound and Christ looses her from being bent over in this state that does not bring honor to a person or meaning or destiny that speaks of the earlier verses where people were cut off and die a horrific death before their time because they have chosen to hold on to their hardness and independence from God in whatever way they do that, in this case, a religious hierarchy. I mean, I could talk for a long time about all of this, but I'll give you some brief examples. When people begin to seek honor from one another. Christ said, how can you believe which seek honor one of another and do not seek the honor that comes from God alone? The tendency in human nature is to seek honor from one another before God. Christ said, if someone comes in their own name, you'll receive them. But if I come in my name, you will not receive me. The reason is because when, there is the, when people lose the genuine fear of God, they no longer have an integrity in their heart before God. And they violate that integrity because they want to be accepted by what people want them to do and believe in. And so they conform to one another and lose their individuality and become like a bunch of stones that all talk the same and look the same. For example, I've been in churches where, you know, there's different truths they emphasize. In one church, they emphasize some wild kind of crazy stuff like, you know, you experience God's presence and you start laughing and then they believe everyone should be laughing. And then they make people feel if they don't laugh that they're not as spiritual. And so the tendency is then that people violate their integrity because they want to experience this or they want to be accepted by others and they want to uh, put their identity more on the leader than in their relationship with God. And so they are not being who they really are before God. And that comes in many forms. 
It limits God and it puts leadership in a higher place when Christ is to be the head. The genuine fear of God is the acceptance of God in the beauty of his holiness, the acceptance of his chastisement, of his judgment, without rebellion, acknowledging our deserved judgment, and the recognition out of that of the absolute greatness of God's mercy to us that causes us to be like the public and the Christ described, that bent his face into the ground and beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and cried from the depths of his being. And Christ said, that man went justi- is justified before God. But the Pharisees that were going, oh, I thank God, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I'm really pure, and, and I fast three times a week, and so on and so on. And were just glorying in their own self-righteousness and trusting in self instead of in a relationship with God. Whatever we trust is where worth and glory is going to. And so they were in a deceptive state of self-worship, which is idolatrous. And as a result, made the Ten Commandments into an idol instead of having a relationship with God that would cause them to fulfill those commandments out of genuine love for God. God is calling us as his people to be those that learn to have a life of prayer, that learn to circumcise our heart, that learn to break up the fall of ground, learn to have a life that, of repentance. What does that come out of? It comes out of spending time before God where we become reciprocative to the beauty of who God is in his holiness and in his mercy and grace that issues out of that. And we are filled with such great thankfulness as we worship God and we learn to be still before him and let our own self-initiated presumptions before God cease, which is what is involved in waiting on God, learning to be still, coming into a place of humility and awe and absolute reverence and love for God. It takes time to break through the shell and the world of our own lives that are like electrons spinning around the nucleus of an atom forming a hard shell. It takes time to perceive that ultimate negative, as it were, which is the holiness of God, out of which springs the ultimate positive, which is the mercy of God and is in the symbol of the cross. But when that happens, the shell is broken and there's the flow of electricity, the flow, which speaks of the flow of the life of God's spirit with power in our inner being. When that happens, we begin to channel who God is to others so that we're not coming in our own name because we're not seeking honor from others. Our motives are pure. We have integrity before God to be who we genuinely are. As a result, we speak the truth in love. We don't have a love that's counterfeit. Our love is true. It's genuine. The way we come into genuine unity is where there is truth and love. That's what the Word of God says in Ephesians, that we are to speak the truth in love, that we might be built up onto Christ, who is the head of the church.
the counterfeit unity is homogenous. It cannot have unity with individuality. It always is homogenous because it's a conformity that violates integrity before God and one another and puts identity in one another and in man and does not reflect or is, re is a channel through which can flow the genuine expression of God to one another in genuine truth and grace or genuine holiness and mercy as it's described in the Old Testament. Christ also describes in this chapter verses 18 to 22 what the kingdom of God is like. And he says it's like unto a grain of mustard seed which a man took and cast into a garden and it grew and waxed a great tree and the falls of the air lodged in the branches of it. What this speaks of is how the kingdom of God is not something that is significant and large. It is in the place of humility. It is in the place where out of the fear of God there is a great humility that makes us insignificant even in the eyes of others possibly. And certainly so that we do not look at ourselves conceitedly before others or before God. The smallness of this mustard seed, a mustard seed is very small, but it is also filled with tremendous life so that it can sprout in the most dry conditions and can break through many barriers. This speaks of what comes out of a genuine relationship of faith with God. The faith of God is also described as being like a mustard seed, a faith that can spring forth in the most adverse circumstances and reciprocate life. Eventually, as a result of that, it becomes something that is of great significance and power, like a large tree. It becomes a place of refuge and fruitfulness. But there is the time of testing and trial. It is also the time of the breaking of self and of the birthing and enlarging of God in us in conformity of him and of our being being conformed to his image. The kingdom of God is something that is hidden and does not seek outward glory and to be seen of men. It says in the word of God that you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Those that have the genuine fear of God do not have impure motives to want to be seen in the eyes of others or to want anything of this world. All they want is to please God because they're so filled with thankfulness that they found a the, the very meaning of why all things exist, of why they exist, it is in the love of God. And it is entering in to the fellowship of this love, which involves coming into the place of great humility and contrition, which is what comes out of recognizing God for who he is. For when we recognize God in his holiness and are utter awe of him, we humble ourselves and come to a place where the hardness is broken, 
that brings us to a place of genuine honesty. And the place of genuine honesty brings us even to a greater place of great humility. So that what comes forth is only totally real, not puffed up, not counterfeit, not proud. It is filled with life and can break through the greatest barriers of offense that would come against us and cause us to be bitter towards someone. When we see how great God's mercy is to us out of his holiness, we can show great forgiveness and love to others because we recognize how unworthy we ourselves are of the goodness and the mercy of God and how great that love of God is to us. And so we can overcome all things by reciprocating God's love instead of loving the things of this world that would rob us of a thirst for reality. Christ, it says in Revelations 19, whoever is thirsty, let him drink freely of the water of life. And in the context of that verse, it says, he that overcometh shall inherit all things. And the emphasis is therefore that by having a thirst for God, we find the secret of overcoming all things. But what quenches our thirst for God is the deception to grasp onto those things of this world that are a lying vanity. Whether it's our desire to be accepted by, by others and be filled with offense because they do not accept us or misjudge us or whatever. If we are alive onto those things, we are not alive onto our relationship with God. And so we must come to a place where we let go of those things and die to them that we might know the rest of knowing that God is our judge and it doesn't matter how we are misunderstood and rejected by man. Then we can be genuine and unique before God and one another to come into a unity that is not losing an individuality of who God's created us to be but is truly a unity that is birthed of God, that allows God to inhabit his people with his presence. Now, the last part of this chapter is describing that, but it also emphasizes in verse 23 to 30, basically this, that we are to enter in to the straight gate. person is asking, are there few that be saved? And Christ is saying, we must strive to enter at the straight gate. Because many will seek and will not be able to. And there'll come a time when God will shut the door of opportunity for people to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then it will be too late. And these, amazingly, are people that Christ plainly describes are those that are in the church. It says, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. And he'll say, I tell you, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. They're described as workers of iniquity, which is willful disobedience to the will of God. How does that happen among those that claim to be God's people? There are those that have died. More so than ever, you can find this on the internet, and I certainly have all kinds of life after death videos on my own website at ultimatemeaning.com and loverealize.com. And they were showing pastors that were in hell because they held unforgiveness in their heart 
towards others. Do you know how terrible hell is? Those that have been shown by God's mercy and escaped after a heart attack or whatever to come back to life has said it's worse than the worst kind of torment that can possibly be imagined in this world. And it goes on and on and on. I cannot even comprehend that. I don't even want to dwell on it. But when you're cut off from God's love and you ultimately reject God's love and you refuse to forgive others because you've not seen how great, somehow you've lost sight of how great God's mercy and goodness is to you because you've failed to pray and to seek him and to have a relationship with him. And you begin to take offense towards others and you can even say, oh, I forgive them in your heart. You're not forgiving them because you're continuing to hold offense. Instead of seeking to lay down your life like Christ did for us in order to win them. Christ is calling us as his people not to be those that seek the glory of men. There are people that want to be in positions of leadership because they just want people to look up to them. There are people that want to be in positions of leadership in the church because they think it's a comfortable lifestyle and they can have a good salary. This is willful disobedience if we choose our own destiny and our own self-interests. And those are the motivating factors in our lives. There are many people in other parts of the third world that call themselves Christians in certain countries. And yet they will lie, they will cheat, they will steal from others. Yes, in some countries, Christianity has become popular and become totally something that is merely emotional experience without integrity and the fear of God and without a life of righteousness and uprightness. And those people will find themselves in hell because they've rejected the love of God and gone in a direction of willful disobedience to choose their own destiny and independence from the will of God, which is what iniquity is. It is willful disobedience. And Christ says in the last verse of this section, in verse 30, and behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. And this is explained in the other Gospels by the parable that the person that first said to the Lord, I'll go and work in your field, later on didn't go. And the one that said, Lord, I won't go, ended up going. And there are those that are so ready to want to do God's will, and they end up in the end through trials being offended at God and withdrawing and turning away from God. And others that have lived a terrible life but have seen like the prodigal son the error of their way and have come in to the kingdom of God and been truly converted. Christ described it in other parables, which I will forgo to go, forbear to go into here, such as the ones that worked all day in the field and the ones that only worked one hour and were idle most of the time, and the master comes and pays them the same wage as the ones that worked all day, and they're complaining. What was the error there that they were complaining? They were not respecting the one that gave them the wages, that he had a right to do what he so choose to do with what was his own. And we also 
when we see people that have lived a terrible life but have finally been saved like the prodigal son should rejoice and not be like the elder brother, but rejoice that they even excel to be greater in the kingdom of God than us. Recognize the mercy of God to them and God's mercy to us. In this last section, verses 31 to 35, What I've been describing in part is described very clearly. The religious hierarchies of man always oppose people genuinely gathering around Christ as the head of the church. There's that old song that I love to sing. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. We are gathering together unto him. We are gathering together unto him. We are gathering together unto him, unto him. Shall the gathering of the people be? We are gathering together unto him. And so they were not willing to gather unto Christ when Christ came the first time. But they sought to form their own kingdom and their own self interests in that kingdom above the interests of the glory of God in his kingdom. God is wanting in these last days to bring forth the gathering around him as described here that he would like it to be as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And God wants to bring the wings of his presence to overshadow us that we would, as individuals, come into that secret place of the Most High, but also corporately. Most churches in North America have not repented. There's very few in their prayer meetings, and they complain about that. But what God is wanting, and what I would suggest they do, and more than suggest, I would command them to do it, in the name of the Lord, start your meetings on your knees, Leadership, get on your faces and seek God. Begin to be in awe of him and to break up the hardness in your heart. Learn to wait on him and to be in humility. Learn to wail and to weep before God and to mourn before him and to humble yourselves and draw nigh to God. And when you learn to have a prayer meeting and make God's house a house of prayer as he's called it to be, it is out of that genuine humility that's birthed from the fear of God that will come forth a purity in worship and a creativity in worship that will be expressed in prophecy and words of wisdom and testimonies. Repent of the control that stops the members of the body from expressing their gifts to one another, to edify one another, and to build up the body of Christ. Allow God to be the head of over his body so that he can come down in fullness and overshadow himself with his presence so that the stones are brought together and we are knit together 
as Paul said, out of the riches of the full assurance of understanding, even of the mystery of the Father and the Son, that relationship of oneness between the Father and the Son, the one true God, which secret is in the fear of God because it describes the Messiah in Isaiah 33, 5 and 6. It says concerning the Messiah, his treasure is the fear of the Lord because in the fear of the Lord is the secret of abiding in God of intimacy in God, because it involves recognizing who God is and reciprocating that recognition of the holiness of God. As it says, give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness and to seek and desire to worship God in the beauty of holiness and to behold the beauty of the Lord that issues out of the wholeness of God, that issues out of the holiness of God. The body of Christ begins to come under the headship of Christ through becoming his house of prayer and learning to allow the servant service to spring out of that. Then we will conquer our community. We will conquer our city because we will bring God's very presence down to fill us with his presence and power and glory so that we will go out in his anointing and not in mere religious works and good works that are not filled with the presence and anointing of God. God is calling us to be those that receive him and that allow that Jerusalem to be birthed and we're to give him no rest until Jerusalem goes forth as a torch that burns in every community and city on earth that it may be consummated in the Jerusalem and Israel God bless you for listening to this passage, listening to this message from this passage of Scripture until I share again from the Word of God. Thank you for listening.